0: This is Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. I'm excited to kick off our ninth year of our study through the nine most important topics we could ever give our minds to think about. We are uh, entering into this last semester here tonight to finish what we started almost a decade ago. We won't stop. We've got other things to deal with. We'll start where we started before and it'll be, uh, I trust, something we'll continue to do for many years until the Lord returns. I want to begin with a word of prayer. If you're brand new to Compass Night, thanks for coming. It's uh, not like Sunday or Saturday night, very different, but I trust it will be stimulating for your thoughts and your mind, help you to grow in your knowledge of God's Word and of the truth. You all got a worksheet. I trust if not, there's usually some in the back and there's always some here in the front. So let's start with a word of prayer as we kick off our ninth year of Compass Night. God, thank you very much for being God that kindly reveals to us Things that are not just interesting for us to know, but imperative for us to know, and critical, eternally important for us to, to not only grasp and know, but to appropriate and apply to our lives. We're grateful for your kindness to us, allowing our minds that were once continually engaged in feudal things to be, for most of us here I trust, uh, reborn, remade, made new, so much so that Paul would say we're a new person. Our thinking now is capable of contemplating your truth and absorbing that in a way that we couldn't before, that we can think your thoughts after you, and we can have our lives affected by the truth that we study, things that we understand about you and how you work, how you have worked, the way that you've arranged, in this case, in our final year, this great and very important topic, this endeavor of yours to save sinful people like us. So God, give us a great semester, I pray. Protect our time let it be efficiently used keep our minds sharp and focused and I pray that you would grant me the articulation to teach in a way that's clear and helpful you know it's not just about this time on the platform but the time preparing to would be endowed by your grace to allow me to assemble a kind of structure to these topics that would be helpful from week to week I know it goes by so quickly but we look forward to this semester as we ramp up toward Christmas and hopefully get a better grasp on what it means that you have sent your son to save us Thank you, God, for our study. Launch it now with your blessing, your favor, and a sense of your presence in Jesus' name. All right. Well, as I try to do each year to give us a sense of where we've been, I used to say and where we're going, at least to give us a sense of where we've been, this is the logical order of what we're doing, the systematic study of a logical progression through the most important topics that we could ever consider to gather biblical data, be able to handily understand it. And be deft in our application of these things as it relates to what the Bible says in these regards. So we start with the origin and nature of the Bible. We call that bibliology. All these are based on the compound word logia, as we'll look at again afresh tonight. If you're new, we'll get that under our belt. And the word biblios in this case, which means book, which of course became our word in English for Bible. That's all Bible means is book. We talked about the nature and origins of the book, the Bible, the study of God, because the word theology means the study of God. We designate that distinctly from the rest of the divisions of theology by calling it theology proper. The person and work of Christ, who was he? What did he come to do? Christology we will have some overlap a little bit in, in themes with this particular section of our study some years back. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, pneumas means spirit, the spirit in this case, the Hagias Pneumata, which is the Holy Spirit. We covered all of these in one segment the creation, nature, and fall of mankind, that has two names in theology. Anthropology, hamartiology, anthropos means man, mankind, Aner means male, so it doesn't just mean a man as opposed and in distinction to women, but mankind. Hamartiology, Harmartia means sin, we looked at that and all its implications recently. Redemption and salvation, we'll talk a lot about that this semester. The study of the church, ecclesia, is the root word in... In Greek, the combination here, we call it uh, ecclesiology, the study of the church, the study of angels and demons. Of course, demons are only angels that are evil, so they all fall into the category of angelology. Angelos means messenger or angel. Study of end times, the eschatos or the end in Greek, the study of the end. So if you look at that, that's the logical progression, is anyone would sit down and study theology. We usually move in this sequence, any systematic theology book you get from our Compass bookstore, or you pick up online, usually going to go in this order or close to it, certainly starting with the first four and ending usually with the last three, at least. So, Uh, We dealt with these in a roundabout way. There were reasons for this, though it seems illogical. We started with the end in 2007. We talked about theology proper next, and bibliology, Christology, uh, angelology. We worked our way to the middle here. Ecclesiology, pneumatology. Last year, we dealt with anthropology and uh, martiology. And this year, soteriology. Is there anybody in the room possibly that has been to all nine years of this besides my wife? Yes awesome. A smattering of applause for you. But you don't have to be physically in the room. All of these are all archived and banked on um, Folk Point site. Easiest way to get there is pastormike.com. Make your way to all sermons, and you can go through these. And if I were going to go through them, if I were you, and you haven't been here in the past, start there at Bibliology and work your way down in this order. Uh, That's not the order chronologically that we've dealt with them, but that is the way you should go about it. The next time we do this, we'll probably go in that order. But next year, I've got some surprises for you. I think it'll be very important for us, if we're all still here, uh, to get through next, next year. So let's get into our worksheet. You got a worksheet. Starts with a chart. It's our only chart tonight. Love charts on Compass Night, so we'll see more as the semester goes along, I'm sure. Uh, let's deal with this word here, soteriology. Uh, the word soteriology, the components of this This should be old hat for a lot of you as we break down the word. Soterio. Logi. Uh, Logi comes from the Greek word logos, which is the word of a statement. It can even mean a speech. It can mean something that is uh, given as a uh, verbal expression of someone. It's 339 times in the New Testament, and obviously... Uh, It means word, speech, or study in this case, that it is the corpus or the set of things that we're going to, to study. So that's very simple. We've been through that before. Now, in Greek, which is where we get all of the first part of the compound of every section of theology, we have on the right side here, soteria, and this may sound familiar to you. Yeshua is the Hebrew word that translates what we're dealing with here. Uh, The root of this, some 480 times in the Old Testament, 192 times in the Greek New Testament. These two words, or I should say the root and all of its cognates, appear in the Bible. You can see this is discussed a lot. It means to save, to help, to deliver. And of course, to put that just as a noun in terms of what we're going to study, it is the study of salvation. Soteriology, derived in the Old Testament from the word Yeshua, in Greek into English, uh, which is just a transliteration, soteria or soteriology. That's where we get the word compound it. I'll put that together. Now, if you're in Lagos, which I recommend that you all do, and you click on the word salvation in the Old Testament, you're going to get the word Yeshua, which is the noun for salvation, the compound, Hamashiach, the the way that it is used for the word Joshua is a close relative, but it's not listed as a direct cognate, although they're related. But if you look in the Old Testament, you get the circle. If you know your logos and you right-click on something, you say word study. It's usually translated salvation, save, help, prosperity, which is interesting. We'll see why. Deliverance, the blank of salvation, salvation the blank of the blank salvation one time or two times. But what's more interesting if you scroll down is it always brings you back to the root. Now the little dot's gonna be next to the word that we're looking at, which is the word salvation. I know this is probably too small to read in the back, but to recognize just the family Of first cousin words that all relate to this this is where i get the number in the upper right hand corner there 480 times the root of this word is used in various hebrew forms in the old testament what you don't see here is the word joshua which occurs many times in the old testament but it was just outside enough of the family to be listed here that would bring it up to 500 and probably close to 600 times in the New Testament, soteria, deliverance, usually translated in our English text in the ESV, salvation, can be translated saved, saving, or saved, strength, or deliverance in a few contexts that would call for that. Less cognate words here, the, the root of this in, in Greek is sozo, and there's a lot of different variations of that in the Greek New Testament, the root and its cognates 192 times, which I think is what I put on your, did I put that as the, uh, yeah, I did, 192 times, that number didn't sound familiar. But anyway, if you don't have Logos and you're not, if you have it, if you don't have it, I'd recommend you get it. If you have it, I'd certainly spend time, whenever you hear an important word uh, even discussed from the platform or read in your books, or just as you're sitting uh, thinking about what we're studying, to spend time right-clicking on those and doing some word studies. All right, our study of theology, let's just kind of figure out what we're going to deal with. And and of course, this is just a very summarized way to look forward to what what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about biblical salvation, which we'll get an introduction to tonight. And then so much that needs to be debated and discussed is the biblical gospel. How do I get saved? What is salvation and how do I get there? And we'll talk about that. And a lot of the controversy that swirls around the idea of the gospel. As a matter of fact, I can preview this now. Next week, I'm preaching in Florida, so I won't be here. But I have, what I like to do is always give you some good fill-in when I'm not here. I thought this would be really interesting for you next week. Back when I was a student in Chicago, the things that I was studying, I remember, were so interesting. Because I saw so much of the gospel that I had grown up with and seen in the gospel tracts in the lobby of the church, not being what I was discovering as a new student, of theology in Chicago. And I really got on a, just a kick to try and figure out what's the deal with the gospel kind of looking like two separate things, one in the Bible and one in evangelical churches today. And it was so disturbing to me. I started to write papers on it. And when I had to teach, which, you know, was in, in places in the nursing homes and in, you know, junior high outreach programs, whenever I had a chance, I would teach on the the drifting of the gospel into two separate camps, the biblical camp, which is what we derive from the Bible and what is happening in culture. And it was such a, A concern. Well, then a book came out called The Gospel According to Jesus that John MacArthur wrote, and I thought, man, this is what I've been trying to get everyone in my little tiny sphere of information to to realize, to to understand. And that book became a watershed in many ways in our culture to indict the gospel and the distortion of the gospel. So, really, you may not know this, but a lot of these guys like John, uh, Dr. MacArthur, who produced so many books, have a guy that's producing most of the work. And and that guy is Phil Johnson up at uh, Grace Community Church. He's the executive director of Grace to You. He's been in the front line of trying to not only put the book out initially, but to defend that book. And he's been on the front lines of understanding all of this debate that's gone on. So I thought next week it'd be great to have Phil come down and talk about the history of that whole debate, why it's been such a big deal. What I asked him to do is to survey the history of it, to look at the issues that are related to the debate to see its modern iterations in our culture and kind of the ways it's been rewarmed of late because it's an old you know, 1980s controversy uh, in popular culture. So Phil will be here next week, uh, and he's slated to speak to you, and he'll give you some great information about what was deemed and coined back in the day as the Lordship Salvation Debate, which was really a discussion of what is the gospel and some of the attacks on the gospel. So that'll be next week. Don't miss that. As a matter of fact, we know people that weren't here tonight. Grab them to be here next week. I I guarantee that will be a provocative and interesting uh, discussion. If you've never heard Phil Johnson speak, you'll get your money's worth next week. All right. Biblical salvation, biblical gospel. So next week, you're all going to be here next week, right? Smile at me if you're going to be here next week. You'll be here next week. Great. We're going to talk about how God accomplished our salvation. And there'll be lots of things that we deal with along the way that relate to misunderstandings that people have when they haven't given it much serious thought. There's so much that really needs to be understood. If we're going to think God's thoughts after him regarding salvation, it's not the way at least as I grew up understanding, it, it, it's, there's much more to it. And we're going to kind of get under the hood of salvation and figure out how it was accomplished. And there are so many related controversies along the way. You know, predestination, election, the role of good works, atonement, how to understand atonement, what happened on the cross exactly. How can an innocent person be punished for a guilty person and that be okay in God's cosmic court of justice? So there's so many things related to salvation that are controversies that have been controversies from Early on in the church, and we're going to work through as many of those as we have time for. So, a lot of related controversies related to salvation of the gospel and how God accomplished our salvation. Why is this so important for us to study? Number one, because the wrong view of soteriology will lead you to hell. <laughs> uh, if you don't understand what salvation is, or maybe you do understand what salvation is, but you don't rightly understand what the gospel is, this is a catastrophic mistake. So, it's very important that we clearly have the right biblical view of soteriology now there's lots of things underneath it that we may have debates about what exactly is the atonement and how was it accomplished i mean we can disagree on some of that and still have saving faith but there are aspects of soteriology that you just cannot be wrong about so a wrong view of soteriology will cost you a lot a low view of soteriology If we don't have a polished, well-formed view of it, or we don't think about it very often, it will result, as we'll try to prove, frustrated Christians, uh, disillusioned Christians, Christians that just don't get why the reality of the Christian life is something that they didn't expect. So we've got to make sure that we're clear about what salvation is and how it was accomplished and to have that in the front of our mind all the time is very important. Simplistic views of soteriology, which is what I grew up with in terms of trying to understand what exactly this means, uh, we'll, what it'll do is it'll create lots of controversies and, and divisions within the body of Christ. And we want to avoid that, certainly within our own church, as best we can. We don't want home fellowship groups filled with two different views of soteriology. And all you need is a faction of your group that has a simplistic view of it, and we've got arguments and controversy and division we don't want that churches have split over aspects of soteriology as re- i've heard of it as recently as my teaching in the seminary this last summer it's still happening churches if they don't agree on the on, on the aspects of soteriology that are important we're going to have problems so that's what we're going to cover that's why it's important in a summary fashion i'm sure there's much more i could have articulated but that's where we'll start all right now let's get into it, the meat of it here we need to look at what the scripture does with the words that we translate to save or be saved or salvation. The biblical use of the terms. This is so critical because if we don't have a 30,000 foot view of the ways the Bible uses this term, you will inevitably go to scripture as most people do. Unfortunately, they'll read a verse with a word that sounds familiar to them that is defined in one way that is not the definition of that word in that context. We are going to confuse what the author's original intent was if we don't know, oh, there's lots of options here regarding how the word salvation is used and being saved. So we have to understand it once you get a good breadth of how broadly this is used then you just don't jump into a passage and assume that we know what is meant when the word salvation is used when we talk about soteriology we're talking about one kind of salvation now what does the bible say let's start with letter a jot this reference down judges chapter 2 verse 18 just to get started If you know the book of Judges, you've been in our women's Bible study, you've read it on your own, you understand that this cycle of oppression, oftentimes enslavement, certainly harassment from other nations, you had the stronger nations subduing Israel. Israel was sent deliverers or judges, they were called. These are not black-robed, gavel-knocking people. These are people that came usually as military leaders to fight these foreign armies. Well, they were in a constant process in the book of Judges over 200, 300 years of saving them. Judges chapter 2, verse 18, on the screen says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them. There's our word, Yeshua. Saved them from the hand of their enemies, all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Letter A, jot this down, to be saved from a military enemy. Now, when you start to recognize... That David was one of the most successful military commanders and wrote many of the Psalms, most of the Psalms. And you read about salvation in the Psalter and now you recognize, well, wait a minute, I've got to be careful because the military commander talking about salvation may be using the word salvation as it's often used in the Old Testament as salvation from a foreign army in a battle to be saved. Now, You've got to know that because once you start reading a psalm about salvation and then you find verses as it's developing that theme in that psalm that seem to have nothing to do with salvation from sin and hell, now all of a sudden we start to recognize I can create a really wacky theology about gospel sharing and evangelism if I don't realize this is not a passage about being saved from the penalty of my sin. Judges chapter 2 is a good reference. There are many examples of that. Letter B, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Sometimes translators try to help us with this, but if you're reading your Greek New Testament, you're not going to see a different word here. You're going to see the word soteria at the end of verse 19. Uh, Paul's in a prison epistle writing to the Philippian church. And a prison epistle, of course, is not writing to prisoners. It's that he was a prisoner writing to the church of Philippi. So he's in prison. And in chapter one, he's talking about the potential of him getting out of prison. And he says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my soteria, my salvation. Some old translations even put it that way. But translators know, wow, that's going to confuse people, perhaps. So let's reserve that word as frequently as we can for salvation from sin, the way people are going to study it for thousands of years when they talk about the forgiveness of their sins. So sometimes they'll put deliverance there. Uh, But in the Old Testament, it's very difficult. And even in the New Testament, we have them giving up on that in certain passages. But the translators do that. But the word is salvation. So... That's in this case, let's call it injustice, you could say prison, but it's used elsewhere for situations where you are not being rightly treated and you are going to be saved from that injustice. We'll see why this is important for us to use that word right now later. And that is a kind of salvation that's discussed in the Bible. To be saved from an injustice, to have a wrong be made right, you are saved in that situation. Same exact word being used. Letter C, James chapter 5. Here's our word, sozo. James chapter 5 verse 15. The pastor's talking about those who are sick. They ought to pray. They ought to get the leaders of the church to pray for them. They ought to have medicinal uses of medications applied to them. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The context, which I could have put on the screen, I suppose, clearly about someone who's sick, but it even uses the word here, so I guess I don't need that. The context about someone with a physical illness, some kind of bacterial or some kind of a viral infection. And he's saying, listen, pray. Pray. And, and, and God will save them. What are you talking about? Letter C, we're talking about people being saved from an illness, recovering from a sickness, having some physical problem that is now going to go away. And that the word is used in this case indiscriminately. Not just the kind of salvation we're going to be studying for the next few weeks, next few months, but it's used here to be saved from an illness. Letter D, Joshua chapter 2, verse 13. This is the story of Rahab. You remember, she's making a deal with the spies. And she says, If I let you get out, here's the deal I want you to make. I want to make sure that you will save, here's our word, Yeshua, alive, my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver us, parallel word, deliver our lives from death. Now, that's pretty severe, but it's one of the ways the word salvation is used. And I guess you could say from a military enemy. You can also say, well, they would be killed on the battlefield. But I started with that one because the whole nation is being talked about there, is that they're being saved from an oppressor. In this case, an individual is asking to be saved from death in a battle. And the word saved is used the same exact word that we're discussing. Saved from military enemy, saved from injustice, saved from an illness, saved from physical death, letter E. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man, psalmist says of himself, cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Context, as we see many times in the Psalms, is varied. Could be anything. Could be illness, could be injustice, could be oppression, could be uh, physical death. Many times it is in the Psalms. What are we talking about here? Well, this just opens up a floodgate of opportunities. Saved from a variety of problems. You've got to ask yourself the question, when you see the word saved and the Lord saved me, the Lord delivered me, that... The passage of scripture that speaks with all the authority of God could be a reference to something that has nothing to do, directly at least, with what we're studying this semester. But the word is used that way. See the breadth of the usage of the word? Important for us to start there. Please, when you read a verse about salvation, about being saved, make sure you understand, could mean one of many different things. We'll get to the one that we're talking about, but before we get to that, As number five on the outline, let's take a little parenthetical moment here to talk about something that applies to all the salvations we've just looked at, including the one we're going to study all semester. Regarding all salvations, just put this down and I'll prove it to you here in the Psalms. That God is ultimately the cause of all these salvations. Now getting philosophical. The ultimate cause of all salvations is God. God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. In Christ, all things hold together. Were it not for God upholding all things by the power of his word, they wouldn't be. Everything that's wrong is prevented or made right by the sustaining, active, decreed, ordained, thoughtful injection of God's plan. God is the the great intelligence, the great will, the great everything that can give something. He's it. He's the giver of these things. Here's a great verse, a couple verses to help with that. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. Now, what's he thinking of there? I don't know, maybe not like Colossians 2, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, right? That in him all things hold together. Hebrews chapter 1, all things, he's the grantor of all these things and and keeps them going. But certainly, any problem that I have, I mean, that's him. God is the, is God of our salvation, Selah. Usually when you see Selah in the Hebrew text, we're dealing with something, it's a mystery to us really what it means. But it usually means, and logically, the more you read every reference to the word Selah, Some people think it's a musical term that now's the time for a musical interlude of some kind. Either way, it makes perfect sense that you're dividing two things and giving a pause and a time to reflect on what's been said. You see that often. It makes perfect sense. You've got to suppose what the word Salem means. And I think here's a good passage where you say, think about God who daily bears us up. He's the God of our our, our salvation. Everything that we have that's wrong, he's the God that can make it right. Verse 20, our God is, a, and think about that, Selah, our God is a God of salvation and to the Lord belongs deliverances from death. So I know that when he says God is a God of our salvation, we're thinking of something probably less than what we're going to study this semester, but it encompasses all the what, one, two, three, four, five different categories that we presented. God is the God who, who does all those things. He's the ultimate cause of that. Psalm 33, this is a big chunk of scripture. Can you read that font size all the way in the back? Not too bad. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. This is a great passage. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, he's got his cameras up and he's watching everything from the big screens, right? No, much more than that. He's observing, yes, verse 15. He who fashioned the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. Now, next two verses, he's engaged. He's involved. The king is not saved by his great army, and a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. So God's not just watching what people are doing. No, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. The implication is here, if God, and we prove this later, and we will with verses on the screen, God is the one who provides those things. So God is watching everything. He's fashioned the internal constitution of people, their spirit. And then when there's something good that happens, when there's deliverance from some threat or some oppression or some illness or some problem, God is the one who's involved in that because it's not the medicine, it's not the the horse, it's not the chariot, it's not the tank, it's not the bomb, it's not the treaty, it's not the Congress, it's not the press, it's God who does that. Now, there's agency involved in people and and, and horses and armies and the might of, of those things, but God is ultimately the cause of those things. That's important for us. One more. Oh, i gave give you another one. Psalm 44, verses 3 through 8. For it is not by their own sword that they did win the land, thinking back to the conquest. Now, I'm thinking if I'm a historian, as Josephus was, looking at Joshua and his men conquering the land, it was by their own sword. With a rare exception, I suppose, of the weird, you know, falling down of the walls of Jericho. But the point is here, there's an ultimate cause for this. Nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. This is something metaphysical. God's provision and, and, and allowance of these things and empowerment of these things for you delighted in them. I want them to win. I'm going to make sure that they win. They're going to go in and they're going to conquer. You are my king, O oh God. You ordain. This is your decree. This is your plan. Salvation for Jacob. There's our word again. Thinking about battle. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. Verse 6. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. He's not trusting in that. Ultimately, he knows there's an ultimate cause, but you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Now, that's the way everyone should respond. That's not how they do respond. And that's the great lament of people that are in the know in scripture. And that is that though people are engaged with God, ordained by God, upheld by God, they don't acknowledge him nor do they give thanks. This is the right way to do it. But the reality is, God grants the victory, and God gives the deliverance. Verse 4, you are my king, O God, or you've ordained salvation for Jacob or any other winner. So God is the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause is God for all salvations. Now, why why do I have to make that point? Here's why. Every time you see the word salvation, you have to ask, what salvation are we talking about? People become universalists and start entire churches and organizations based on this verse. And they misunderstand it because they don't understand the breadth of the word salvation or the reality that God is active in those salvations that are not the salvation we're talking about throughout our semester. First Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior, the one who saves, of all people, especially of those who believe. Now the universalist will say, see there, he saves everyone in the end. These are the kinds of love wind people that want to say, God's going to save everyone. And they quote verses like this to say, well, certainly that's the case right there. Because you can't be the savior unless you save someone. And you know, in the Bible talks about salvation. It's talking about heaven and hell and forgiveness of sins. No, that's not the case in many, many passages. So in this text, you can say, well, that makes perfect sense. God then is the savior of everyone. If any child was conceived, if any child was was born, if any child survived as a live birth, is any, if any child got through their childhood, if any person did anything that accomplished anything, the Bible says God's, God's the Savior of them. Anything that comes onto someone's life that is a win, a positive, the Bible is very clear. God is the one granting that. So knowing even just what we've studied so far tonight helps us with verses like that. Go, Oh, totally, I get that. There's some other kind of salvation that is really the kind of salvation that we're going to study all semester that is especially the kind of salvation that makes Christ the Savior or God the Savior of them, especially them. But God's the Savior of everybody. That makes perfect sense in the Jewish mindset. I think that's why verse 16 is here in James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, about what? that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So everything that's teleos, everything is right, everything that comes that we say that's good, comes from God, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Now, that idea starts with this, don't be deceived. What's the deception? That it is by my great might, it is by my sword, it is by the strength of my horse, it is because of our military success, it is that I did well in school and got this job. This theme is important for us to catch. God is the savior of everyone. And savior means he saved them in a lot of situations that have nothing to do with what we're dealing with this semester. And they have a related parallel, but completely different. Oh, and by the way, are they saved by grace? Sunday school question here. Answer? Yes. Think about that. Your neighbors are saved by grace. Yeah, they are. In whatever way they have made it to this day, they've survived and conquered whatever they've conquered from the time they were a, an infant or, or, or a pre-born child. They've been saved by grace, by God. They, we should get comfortable with that kind of discussion. Now, the problem is they're not saved by faith, though, are they? Because they don't trust in Christ. They don't trust in God's deliverance. Occasionally, I suppose, the foxhole, quote-unquote, Christian, who cries out to God and gets saved, well, there's one by faith, trusting in God. Well, okay, occasionally the non-Christian is saved by faith and by grace. Does that sound like I'm a universalist? Not if you understand the breadth of the use of the word salvation. Do you follow that? That's important for us to catch regarding all salvations. God is the ultimate cause. God then is the savior of everyone. Great. Let's turn the page over. Number five. Let's introduce now what we're going to be dealing with all semester. God's ultimate salvation concern. A couple of verses that may help us realize the distinction here when we have some kind of adjective connected to the word salvation. Hebrews chapter five, verse nine. And being made perfect He became the source of, now here's some help for us, doesn't just say salvation to all who obey him. Now, many times the word salvation is referring to the salvation we're going to study this semester that doesn't have a qualifier on it, but here's a qualifier that helps us. We're talking about eternal salvation. Now, look at that list on the backside that we had, the biblical uses of the term, A, B, C, D, E. Now, are any of those eternal? No. If you're saved in a battle and if you're saved from an illness, that's not eternal, that's temporal. The salvation we're going to be talking about, let's just put it down that way, letter A, is eternal salvation. It has eternal ramifications, and every other kind of salvation the Bible talks about is not eternal. It's temporal. It's this life. Here's another way that it's put in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So completely and thoroughly and utterly saved eternally and utterly saved. That's the kind of salvation we're going to talk about all semester. But every time you see the word salvation, we're not talking about eternal salvation in every case or uttermost salvation, saved to the uttermost. We're not talking about that in every situation. Not even in this passage that we looked at that is so confusing to people. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Yeah, He is the Savior of all people, but not eternal salvation. He's not the eternal Savior to them. He's not the uttermost Savior to them. All right. Eternal salvation, uttermost, saved to the uttermost. This is, now let's try and understand how this works. It is rooted in this key and very important theological word, biblical word, reconciliation. It's rooted in reconciliation, the way the Bible uses the word reconciliation. Note this now, this puts it in clear perspective. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. The issue of salvation that's eternal and uttermost salvation is the kind of salvation that puts us together, reconciles us to God by the death of his son. Now, people aren't saved on the battlefield by the death of God's son. They're not saved from an illness by the death of God's son. You might philosophically try to get there in some roundabout way. But no, the kind of uttermost eternal salvation that we're going to talk about, that's by the death of his son. And that makes us, here it is again, reconciled. And if we're reconciled, then we're saved and we're saved by his life. He becomes the thing that saves us in the uttermost eternal way that we're going to be talking about. Reconciliation. Just give you that sense of what it is. The idea of reconciliation is something that's broken, that's going to be repaired. We use the word in relationships horizontally. That's not the way we're talking about it here. We're talking about people and God, not people and people, but to know that relationships are torn and then restored, we get the idea. And we speak corporately when we say reconciliation, because I was never with God. I was born away from God. You follow me there? In other words, reconciliation is speaking of mankind. I am one who is reconciled to God, not because I was ever with God and then was removed or bereft of God. It's that mankind was bereft of God in the garden. Adam and Eve had sinned. Mankind is away from God. There's, let's put it in terms that you're used to here. You've seen these things endlessly, the gap, the bridge, the chasm, the divide, whatever you want to call it. We've got God divided from the time I was born from me because I'm a child of Adam. So that's what needs to get fixed. And as the Bible would say, the problem is let her see sin. The thing that makes the problem that has to be solved by reconciling me to my maker was one that was created by the problem of sin. The verse you learn in partners is Isaiah 59 2. It starts with verse 1. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save and his ear is not dull that he cannot hear. It's not like he can't look across the chasm. He can. The problem is your sin that's not being dealt with. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Again, picture the picture of divide. There's a problem. The problem is sin. And the problem is one that needs to be dealt with. We've got to solve the problem caused by sin. The Lord can save. The problem is sin. Until sin is dealt with, we've got a distance. Letter D. Salvation then is from what? Distance. Now that's how it's usually presented in the little bridge Tracks that I read growing up. You know what? I'm on this side. God's on that side. Don't you want to be with God? And I said, No. I don't really think I need to be with God. Why? And then they have to appeal to me somehow that I need to be with God because wouldn't it be better if you were with God? I don't know. Would it? Well, pitch me the the better God. Well, that's the gospel I inherited in my life when I looked around the landscape and read all the tracks, and then I realized that's not the gospel at all. It's certainly not the problem. I don't need to be reconciled so I can have a better life. I need to be reconciled because I've got a problem on this side of the chasm. And that is where the word salvation comes in. You don't have any concept of salvation until we recognize there's a foreign army that's oppressing you. There's an illness, a bacteria, a virus that's attacking. There has to be some kind of enemy that I can be saved from. The picture is reconciliation. But what's wrong with me being unreconciled to God? Well, because God's just retribution is coming. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood. Of course, that's the focus. God, by his own life, has to somehow fix the problem. Much more shall we be saved by him from. Now, that's what I'm looking for. What am I saved from? A life of being removed from a relationship with God? That's no big deal. Most people think it's fine. I'm, I'm fine without him. No, there's a problem. If you don't reconcile with God, you are going to now incur the consequence of your sins. Wrath of God. I've told you the story, I talk about God's anger, and the lady met me at the door right out here and said, you know what, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but God does not get angry. And I said, have you ever heard the phrase wrath of God? She said, yeah. I said, do you know what the word wrath means? Well, I just don't like the way you preach. I mean, I don't know. She came up with some other reason to walk out, but wrath means anger. The problem is when she pictured anger, she pictured someone coming home, throwing a briefcase, kicking the dog, yelling profanity. That's not God's anger. It's not capricious anger. It's not knee-jerk anger. It is the, as I put it, just retribution. He's angry at sin, and in a measured way, he retaliates for sin, and that's what he does. He holds it back for now in this season of his mercy, and he's willing to save some by his grace, as we'll look at. But that's the thing that we are saved from. If I can solve the problem of sin, now I can be reconciled to God. And if I'm reconciled to God, then I don't have the thing between me and God that will one day cause the problem of just retribution. A holy and perfect and just just and measured anger of God unleashed at the problem of sin. Letter E. The biblical picture, of course I like the pictures to show me the sense of it, is beautifully painted in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 be good for you to open your bibles to this one. I'll read it, I'll put it up on the screen, but we're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at this picture. Salvation needs some kind of object that I'm being saved from. No better picture to put all the elements together in my mind than this great passage in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 through 18. I start in verse 16 because we're so familiar with it, but the real meat of it is 17 and 18. Romans 16, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now here's the problem with your ESV Bible. Not a problem, but something that throws us off here is that there's a division, is there not? And I don't have mine open right now, but the division between verses 16 and 17 with a heading and some space, that's a problem. Or is it between 17 and 18? 17 and 18, still a problem. This is one thoughtful unit. We, we shouldn't break it up, in our thinking at least. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It is the power of God, here's our word, for salvation. We're not talking about salvation from those other things. We're talking about the real salvation that matters that we're going to be discussing eternally. Uttermost salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, presented first to the Jews, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth not ashamed of the gospel power of god for salvation everyone who believes we've got the jew first the greek after that in the righteousness of god for in it the righteousness of god is revealed so this good news there's something about god's righteousness being revealed and it's acquired by faith from faith for faith we've written the righteous going to live by faith and the wrath of god on the other hand by contrast it's revealed from heaven just like the righteousness is revealed and it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people, of men, by those uh, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, here's the picture that I think is helpful. Let's get started with this. Verse 16 and 17. Gospel means good news. Ou angelion. Ou means, is the particle in Greek for good. Angelion is message. Angelos is messenger. Angelion. Ou angelion. The ou angelion. The good message. We call it the good, good news. The good news. The question should be if someone barged in the room and said, I have good news, you're going to say, What's your news and why is it good? Well, the answer comes in verse 16b because there is salvation. Salvation is provided, and salvation means you're saved from something bad. Even the non theological uses of it in the Bible are. Save from a virus, from a bacteria, from an enemy, from a sword, from the invading armies, from you know, all kinds of trouble. What's the bad thing here? Save from what is the question. Okay, well in the text it says very clearly the anger of God. We're saved from the anger of God. God's righteous anger against sin, his just retribution for things that are wrong. So it's good news because we're saved from God's judgment. Now people write books like Rob Bell and will say, makes no sense and Brian McLaren and all the rest, it makes no sense because what you're basically saying is that God is saving us from God. And we say, well, that makes perfect sense because we understand that God is a kind of God, unlike people who can't, in their righteousness, look at something unjust and say, well, it's no no problem. From the beginning, it would be wrong for God to not deal with the injustice of people's lives, and dismiss it. And I always get back to the illustration, if I'm running for the judge in Orange County, I can't possibly run on the campaign slogan, vote for me, because all the criminals go free. Vote for me, all go free. Why can't, because that's not the point of a judge. A judge can't be a good judge if everyone that comes on the docket into his courtroom is dismissed as, as, as okay, you're fine. And, and then he throws in with a wink, and I love you we'd say, I don't want that guy to be the judge because our, our our world would be chaos. Our county would be chaotic. So justice, if God is the judge, has to be meted out on sin and that needs to be solved. Well, the Bible says God is so righteous, he can't violate himself. Therefore, he has to solve the problem. And he is looking at sinful people saying, I must punish sin. I can only be the one because they're all sinful, who can righteously extend something to save them from their own sin. Therefore, it's 100% correct, though they think it's foolish because they think, well, if I'm going to punish my child, how do I save my child from being punished? Well, I just don't punish him. They say, well, why didn't God do that? That's their view of God. Well, God just would stop. But the reality of what the Bible teaches is he cannot stop and maintain his justice. And as I often say, God, if he's not just, is not good. And if he's not good, he certainly can't be God. So God has to be just and has to punish sin. That's the whole arrangement of salvation that we'll be exploring, along with all of its controversy that surrounds it. The gospel's good news. Why is it good news? Because we're being saved from something bad. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from God's wrath. Who saves us? God does. God saves us from himself? Exactly. The love of God saves us from the justice of God. But he has to do that with the penalty and the punishment that we see dramatically played out on the cross. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. We have that big space between these two in our Bibles, right? We see, okay, verse 17, the gospel has some kind of good news because it provides something for us that's being revealed from heaven called righteousness. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven as well. Here's something that you couldn't miss if you had your Greek New Testament, open. Well, of course, our English text, it's the same word too. But it is the same exact word, revealed. This is the important point. There's something in the gospel coming from God. God is revealing something called righteousness. And God then, by contrast, is also revealing something called his anger or his wrath. His just recompense for sin from heaven. That's the exact word and it's very important for us to catch the connection there. In the one case, he's revealing righteousness. And in the other case, he's revealing wrath. Now, righteousness, I can understand. If righteousness is salvation, I can see people are getting saved. His wrath is being revealed from heaven. Well, this is stated in a way as though it's already happening. And he explains that in chapter 2. It's not that it's here yet. It'd be like, you know, seeing Noah build an ark and having people walking up the ramp and say, look at those people. They're being saved. God is supplying salvation for them, but it hadn't started raining yet. No, but it's on the way. And when people refuse, according to this passage, they are, as it says, Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of hard and impenitent hearts, they're storing up wrath for themselves, God's righteous anger, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. So he's going to reveal his wrath. It's coming. It's called judgment. And judgment is when books are open and very detailed and measured responses are given to sin. That's coming. And he says, that's coming, but you know what's being revealed now? The solution. The ark is being built, the ramp is being let down, and God is providing an answer. So God is saving Noah and his family, to think of that historic situation, from his own flood. Yes, that's exactly the picture. God saves a family from himself. That's the picture of salvation. Of course, the illustration I like much better than two cliffs and a divide in between because it gives us the sense that it's not just, hey, why should I cross this chasm? is the picture you've seen in the umbrella illustration in partners. But here's the picture from our passage. Verse 18, he's revealing wrath. Against who? Against all who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So I have sin or I have evil in my life. I'm suppressing truth. I don't want to admit my problem. So I got a face up that thinks I'm okay. Behind it, I'm sinful. I don't want to admit the problem of my sin. Wrath is coming. It hasn't gotten here yet, but it's on the way. And every day I make decisions in my sin, I'm storing up more of his just recompense in my life. But, the Bible says, there's a righteousness also coming. So, as God sends judgment, he's also sending a way to get out of it. A righteousness that's going to solve the problem and counteract, if you will, the problem of his wrath. It's provided, how? By the power of God, which he's not ashamed of. Because that gospel has a righteousness. A safe spot now is available both to the Jew and to the Greek. Doesn't matter who you are, you don't have to be Abraham's offspring. So that God can absorb the wrath that he's sending and he's providing something that reaches out at the same time and stops it. Rain is going to come and flood is going to kill everybody. But I'm going to build a boat. And so I'm going to save these people if they get in it from my own judgment. That's the picture. So a person can say, what do I have to do? According to the text, I have to trust him from faith to faith. It's provided by faith. It is the power of God for all who believe. So. I just need to say I, I, need, I need the fix, which means I've got to take down this false sense of my own acceptance, and I'm okay. I have to admit my problem and trust him. The problem with the other people is they don't think they have a problem. What sin are you talking about? God wouldn't do that to me. He's too nice. If you're not willing to see the problem and by faith trust him by getting in the only safe spot that exists, then we have a problem. You will encounter the just recompense of God. That picture's helpful to me. That's why I created the umbrella illustration because I couldn't find an illustration that could be drawn on the back of a napkin that would help people recognize that it's not just I'm on this side, alienated from God. I need to be reconciled. Why do I need to be reconciled? Well, because if you cross the bridge and this is what got us into a real weak gospel in our generation, well, wouldn't it be better for you? Wouldn't it be better for you? Wouldn't it be better for you? And most of us say no, and so we have to trump up how it would be better for us, and we stay on the other side because what, what it doesn't matter. There's no urgency to that gospel. But in Scripture, the urgency is God's revealing wrath from heaven. God's revealed righteousness from heaven. God is going to bring recompense on your life because of your sin, but if you're willing to trust him, there's a spot where his recompense has already been. That picture is helpful to me. Number six, okay? You're talking about this uttermost eternal salvation. I need... Again, if I'm going to help our hermeneutic or our understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament in particular, I need to understand something that we call progressive revelation. Because again, I'm going to come to wrong conclusions about eternal and uttermost salvation unless I recognize something that is true in the Bible. And that is letter A. Let's talk about this progressive revelation. There is progressive revelation. Revelation is something that God reveals information that would not otherwise be known. He has to reveal it. And what progressive revelation is asserting is God didn't reveal every, everything at once. God didn't reveal all the truth at the beginning. God did not hand Adam and Eve this 66-book library of his mind on paper. He didn't do that. This whole thing started, and God revealed now when people were excluded from his presence, revealed things a little bit at a time. Matter of fact, he revealed some things in nature that they should have understand, but they didn't understand. And in time, he had to clarify and even point back to the fact, I did say some things in scripture that should have made you understand it. In other words, there were times that he said, look, I know that you guys have been into this whole polygamy thing. But from the beginning, that's not the way I created it. and You should have understood it. I created male and female. It was Adam and Eve. And you should have understood that that was a a one-to-one pairing. He says about the Pharisees, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees that refused to believe there was a resurrection. He said, I know I didn't clearly put that out in many places in in the Old Testament, certainly in the Torah, but I'm telling you, you should have looked at things like God claiming he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they were dead. You should have known that there's life after death and a resurrection coming. Those are the kinds of things that God said, now, if you really pondered the truth, you probably could have figured this out, but there's a lot of things I didn't reveal to you. I didn't reveal everything at the beginning. As the canonical prophetic picture moved on, well, then these doctrines started to get filled in. We got more information as God revealed throughout prophetic history. Doctrines fill in as God reveals throughout prophetic history. So whatever was going on, let's say, in, I don't know, let's make it uh, 1445 BC, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I'm going to have more information probably by the time I get to the exile which is in the 5th century B.C. because I got a lot of prophetic books being written between those two. And I'm going to know more by you know, the, the, the end of the 1st century when I've got 27 books of the New Testament and Christ himself teaching and clarifying a lot of things that weren't really clear in the Old Testament. That's what's called progressive revelation. God did not reveal everything at once. God didn't put all the information in the first generation. And he took time to build this library to reveal things clearly in propositional statements in black and white, in the Bible, in scrolls, from the the synagogues, and from the temple. So that's important for us to catch. Why? A couple reasons. Let's start with some things that were obvious from the beginning, perhaps more obvious than they are now. While some things got filled in, other things were known from the beginning. And here's something that was known from the beginning. When it comes to eternal salvation and uttermost salvation, we said the real problem is reconciliation. I'm not reconciled to God and I need to be reconciled. That need was obvious from the beginning. Would you agree? How about from the first five minutes after the fall? Do you think Adam and Eve understood their need for reconciliation? Oh, sure. Let's remind you. Two verses in Genesis 3. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. What is that? Problem. What does that mean? Barrier. What does that mean? Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It's not like it was before. Your relationship is torn. That was clear. No one needed to tell the first generation, the 50th generation, or the 5,000th generation, hey, you know what? You're not not in sync with God. They knew that. Matter of fact, they knew it at the beginning more existentially and, and more poignantly than we know it now. Verse 24 made it clear by driving them out of the garden. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherub and flaming sword and turned ev- uh, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a mystery to that. We talked about it in eschatology. But the point is, you can't even be in this garden that you're in. They really understood. Whatever I had, I've lost it. And they know they needed it back. So, that part's not progressive. might even be, might even be degenerative in the sense that we don't sense it the way that they did. Salvation, though... As it related to, what difference does reconciliation make after I die? That was unclear. Okay, there's lots of things that lead us to conclude that what I've got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or in the book of Romans, or in First Thessalonians, or in the book of Revelation, or even in the book of Jeremiah and Daniel, they didn't have that early on, and they didn't have clarity about this. Some examples. Job, which, by the way, is a story that is probably in the period of Genesis in the patriarchs. I've tried to prove that before in different sermons. Lots of reasons for that. The monetary units, the life that he, the length of his life, all those things. Job 10, verse 20. Here, as he's pondering his own death, he says, Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return. When I die, I'm not coming back. To the land of darkness and deep shadow, I go. To a land of gloom, like, like thick darkness. Like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. Okay, that's, I know he's depressed and all. But you were hailed in chapter one as the most godly man in the land. So you are walking in reconciliation to the God with sacrifice and, and worship and praise. And now you're thinking of death, and this is how you view death? So whatever your reconciliation is, it doesn't look like it's working very good on the other side. You just got to take that at face value and recognize this is not doctrinal teaching. It's a snapshot of people's understanding of doctrine. You see the difference? The passages that you read, these are not doctrinal teachings. These are people's understanding of doctrine. And when people in, in, in different cult groups and fringe groups start teaching things like soul sleep, do you know where they get it? From passages like this where people are speaking of their understanding of doctrine in progressive revelation before there was later clarity and they start building doctrines on that because if i believe in soul sleep i can think well if i'm reconciled and i die i guess i'm going to the deep land of the dark land of thick darkness and you know that's how it'll be salvation in the afterlife was unclear it was often pondered and the questions not in the despair of job and his illness but often they sat there and wondered what's it going to be like psalm 88 verse 10 through 12 Verses 10 through 12. Psalm 88. Here's the Psalms. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Selah. Let's think about that. Musical interlude. Whatever it means, it's a time to stop and ponder that. Hmm. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? I mean, who sits there and praises you in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, which is the other word for, for death. The place of the, of the dead. Are wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? They're scratching their heads. They pondered it. They mused about it. They scratched their head on it. We had one today in our daily Bible reading. Do you remember that this morning? DBRs, Ecclesiastes 3. For what happens to the children of man? And what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. Animals die, people die. They all have the same breath. I mean, they're all this animated material thing. They got some kind of spirit in them. Man has no advantage over the beast. All is vanity. All, verse 20, go to one place. They go to death. They go to the place of the dead. All are from the dust, and to dust they return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. I don't even know how it works. But it doesn't look real good for us. We're going to die like dogs. Now, it's not, an it's not an encouraging book we read and begin to read every year on my birthday. <laughs> but it is a snapshot of the middle monarchy about the 10th century BC. That's a lot like a lot of the Psalms where they just scratch their head and go, Hmm, when we die, what's going to happen? Now, those are people commenting on a doctrinal theme who don't have clarity about that doctrinal theme. It was pondered, but it was unclear. It was eventually clarified. By the time of the exile, that's the 5th century BC when Israel is put into Babylon and God is revealing a lot through the prophets there. The end, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. These are important books that start to give us new light from God through his prophets. The end of the book, look what he says. Verse 2, Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, Even that wouldn't clear what's going on when that body's dead. But now we're going to talk about a physical resurrection. Do the dead rise to praise you, the psalmist said 600 years earlier? I don't know. Now here's God speaking through Daniel. They're going to rise. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Oh, okay. So there's two destinations here. And those who are the wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. There's glory for the resurrected saints. Here's more information on that. Now we get a lot more by the time the New Testament comes around and Christ begins to teach on this topic. But it's interesting how we have to watch the progression of the understanding of salvation in the afterlife. It starts to get clear, but it wasn't super clear through a lot of the old. So be careful that you don't build your eschatology on what happens after life from a lot of the Old Testament passages where we don't have clarity and we have a lot of people musing on the doctrine. Here's what was clear. Not only the need for reconciliation, but when people sought reconciliation, they weren't sure how the benefits would be played out early on. But they sure did want it. They desired it. You know, they desired it when they were obviously being wooed by the Spirit and convicted by the Spirit. But look at this picture of reconciliation, Psalm 27. You have said, seek my face. The Bible says, seek me, know me, search for me with all your heart. He says, my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. I want relationship with the alienated God. You are alienated from me because of my sin, right? My sin has hidden your face from me. I want reconciliation. And, And by the way, I realize there's a peril when I'm not reconciled. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You, oh you, have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. Now here's a discussion that's moving into salvation. And we know that this particular period of biblical history, we're not clear about how that salvation affects things in the afterlife. But I know this, I need to be right with you. I need to be reconciled to you. I know there's a lot of problems when I'm not. And when you allow that, that's called salvation. And that's what I seek. Reconciliation is at the heart of salvation. When you understand that, You don't have to even figure out all the ramifications of what salvation means after you're dead. You know that right now there's implications of eternal salvation, uttermost salvation, reconciliation to God. And you find that throughout the Old Testament. Letter G, it was a clear desire to be saved from sin's penalties. Now again, early on in the Old Testament, it looked like the only way we're going to see the sin's penalties played out are in this life. Did you read a lot of that in Proverbs? You saw things about God punishing sinners. And it was always a discussion about, you know what? God's going to have to get to punish them soon. They may have a reprieve for a while, but they're going to be punished. Now, there are some hints in the Psalms that there's going to be some punishment afterwards. But there wasn't clarity on that. It wasn't clear. There was a lot of musing that shows me that they didn't understand that. At least not across the board. But they did know that the problem of not being reconciled means there's going to be penalty for my sin. Psalm 7, 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge. That means he cannot just wink at sinners and go, well, boys will be boys, let them go. Vote for me, all go free. I'm a loving God, I love you. Just try to do better next time. No, he feels indignation. That means a righteous, justified anger every day because he sees us, he sees us sinning. Now, if a man does not repent, if I don't see my sin for what it is and repent, then God will wet his sword He has bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him, his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, you read the Old Testament. Most of that you're going to see when it's described and explained is about repercussions for my sin in this life. That created the problem. That really the book of Job, which it was probably reintroduced in the middle monarchy of Israel, to solve the problem of why is it that righteous people suffer and sinful people prosper? That's what the book is about. It starts to peel back a little bit of the picture of a spiritual battle behind the scenes, but there's still question in Job's mind about the afterlife. You can get that. But we did know this that if I don't repent, because I'm sinful and because of my alienation, there's gonna be penalty for my sin. That got developed in the old testament as it progressed. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That means I know I'm sinful, but I need help. I want, I want your forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you were going to inscribe those and keep those, well, then who could, who could stand? Who could bear that? You should mark iniquity. No one would be able to survive. So I need your forgiveness and I need your grace. But with you, there is forgiveness. And that's why we fear you. God to be feared because we know you could punish, but you willingly don't punish. But we know we need to be crying out for your mercy. There's the picture of knowing I got a problem. The problem is sin, it causes problems between me and God. And there is a coming judgment for my sin. There wasn't a lot of clarity in the Old Testament as to when that judgment would be completely settled. But I knew there was a problem and it needed to be fixed because if God were not to forgive us somehow, well, then there would be penalties to pay. They just didn't understand quite how many and for how long. Are these letters working out correctly? Okay, H. Did I miss one? I'm on H right now. Yeah. The specific means of salvation was unclear. In the New Testament, we looked at Romans. How are are people saved? By Christ, the blood of Christ. We quoted several passages already. In Hebrews and Romans, made it crystal clear you know that you're New Testament Christians, most of you. You know the means of salvation. It wasn't clear in the Old Testament. You can imagine being an Old Testament person. You had ceremonies that you were supposed to practice. And we knew that was part of some kind of worship and throwing myself on the mercy of God, crying out for mercy, wanting God to not mark my sins against me, all of that. In the New Testament, super clear. Hebrews nine thirteen and 14, If the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, we knew it did something. There was some kind of it, you know, I feel like I'm, I got this fixed, I checked these boxes, I did this thing, I did it in faith. Well, how much more? The reality of this, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So I did ceremonies. I trusted God. I threw myself on his mercy. I wanted his mercy. I wanted to be reconciled. I did these things, but I realized these are ceremonies because even an Old Testament person knew it wasn't about animals that makes me right with God, but they were part of the symbolism of it all. Now the clarity was the New Testament. Christ was going to die. I love this passage. I quote it often John 1 29. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd love to hear the intertestamental synagogue discussion about how God was going to solve the problem of sin. Most people didn't want to look at the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. They wanted to look at the triumphant king in Isaiah. They wanted to see the Messiah as a deliverer and a conqueror and a king, but there was a problem of sin in some kind of sacrifice, and John apparently had the sense, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be a sacrifice for sin, and it's not an animal. Here he is, the Messiah. He took the suffering servant passages seriously, and he realized by New Testament times, Christ is going to die and take care of our sin. Specific means of salvation was unclear, and even that, if you heard me preach on John the Baptist and Luke, this was probably an exclamation out of by the Spirit of God that didn't have perfect clarity in his mind. I, I say it was clear, but He showed in his own ministry that he didn't understand why Christ was opposed the way he was. Anyway, preached on that another time. I, the required response from sinners was always clear. People understood that. They understood it from the beginning and they taught it from the beginning and everyone knew what it was. Now, that juxtaposition of H and I, you should understand that will solve so many problems. You can write the Schofield Reference Bible, which had this glaring problem in it, and realize that even a learned teacher of theology, missed the point because he didn't make this distinction. And that is, though the means of salvation was not clear, the response to be saved was clear. And if that means I need to be reconciled to God, I don't want the penalty of my sin, I don't want my sins marked against me, I want to be that blessed person in Psalm 32 as his sins forgiven and his iniquity not counted. How do I do it? I don't know the mechanism of it clearly. The focal point of my faith is just somehow generally on God and his goodness it would be sharp focus in the New Testament. So that changes between the Testaments. But the response, oh, that's always been clear. I got so many passages on this. First Kings chapter 8. I'll only give you a couple. First Kings 8, 47 through 50. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive. In other words, they're now being punished, much like in the book of Judges, for their sin. But they turn in their hearts. That's the word that's translated sometimes to, to repent. Right? If they turn and they repent. Here's another word. And they plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned. There's confession. We've acted perversely and wickedly. Now they're not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Now they're agreeing that they're sinners. They've repented in their hearts. If they repent with all of their mind, it's sincere. And with all of their hearts in the lands of their enemy, next verse, then you'll hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, and their prayer and their plea. And you'll maintain their cause. You'll forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you. You're going to be gracious and forgiving. What do they have to do? Turn in their heart. Repent. They have to plead with you. They have to admit their sin. Uh, that's everywhere in the Bible. From the beginning. We know what we have to do to be right with God. Speaking of the verse, I just quoted off the cuff. Psalm thirty two one Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there's no deceit. Well, there's the confession. I'm not lying to myself. He explains it for when I was silent about my sin, when I tried to suppress the truth about my problem and unrighteousness, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There's the conviction of the spirit for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Think about it. Musical interlude, whatever it means. I acknowledged to you my sin and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. And I know what works with you. When that happens, a sincere confession, you forgive the iniquity of my sin. Great passage which is the Hebrew word sometimes translated repentance. It's translated here, returning or turning back. For thus says the Lord God, speaking now through Isaiah, coming up on the exile of Judah, he says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Okay, you're going to get right with God. You're going to have the consequences of your sins removed if you would turn and trust If you would repent and believe, the kind of belief we're talking about in the New Testament, trusting. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. So trust Him. You want to have a right relationship with the living God and have the sin problem removed? Well, the response has always been the same. That is critically important. If someone asks you, well, people were saved differently in the Old Testament. No, they weren't. Not at all. But Christ didn't die until the New Testament. I understand. But anyone who's ever had their sins forgiven, if God is going to be just, he has to somehow solve the justice problem. He was going to do that in Christ. And in time, he does it in the New Testament, but everyone was forgiven by the same mechanism of grace by Christ. Was their faith in Christ? No, they didn't even know Christ. They had a general sense of some deliverer coming. They put their trust in God... They had ceremonies that reflected the coming Christ, but they were saved by repentance and faith, just like we are. When they recognized their sin, they confessed their sin, they repented of their sin, and they trusted in God, they had their relationship made right. All right. I've already done that one, haven't I? Sorry. Some unbiblical views. This should be easy for us to, to recognize. I mean if that's I mean, I've just painted an introductory picture of it. But let's think through this one. Just three real quick ones as we wrap up. The social gospel salvation. There is a salvation out there talked about by quote unquote, Christians who talk about God and read the Bible, but it's called the social gospel. What is that about? That's about solving the problem of poverty. And, you know, we need more mosquito nets because there's malaria and we've got to dig some wells. There needs to be clean sanitation and there's inequity in pay and all these things that you hear people talk about. They want to go solve those things in the name of Christ. That became the essence of salvation in Christianity in, in the period, if you're a historian of late, of the... 20s and 30s in America and in Europe of what we call classic liberalism. In other words, they started to say I don't really believe in a Christ that rose from the dead because I don't even know if there is life after death and if there is I don't know. I certainly don't think there'd be a god on the other side who would judge people and and put them in hell. I don't believe that. So, now I got to look at all these passages because I presume that god is not that god that he reveals himself to be and i've got to say well then do i throw the whole bible out or can i take those salvation verses and just apply them the way that sometimes they were applied in the old testament and that is or even in the new testament being saved from sickness being saved from poverty being saved from all the problems of injustice in life that's what we're all about and many organizations in the name of christ were launched to try and save people from these problems and that became the essence of salvation that was it as a matter of fact, they didn't want to talk about anything beyond that because they weren't even sure they believed in it. And certainly classic liberalism did not. If you look at spiritual needs versus temporal needs, now there are, there are temporal needs. If people don't have clean water, they will die. If they don't have mosquito nets and they get malaria, they will die. If they don't have, you know, uh, safe streets, they might get jumped on by a gang, they might die. You're right. Those are needs. We use the word needs, but they're temporal needs. There are spiritual needs, as we talked about, that are eternal salvation. And salvation to the uttermost, that's the priority. Now, we'd like to keep people alive so that we can preach the gospel to them. But it is not replacing eternal salvation with temporal salvation. And the way I always like to describe that, like being on a battlefield to kind of bring it all into temporal salvation. When someone's about to temporally die and we pull out the pedicure kit and say, Well, your your nails look terrible, sir. Let me help you out here. That's what's going on today by many people in a new wave of liberalism. It's not classic liberalism of the early uh, 20th century. It's a new repackaged liberalism that often comes out of the emergent church and others like that, that give up on truth and absolute truth. They look at the Bible with a skepticism regarding supernatural things, and then they start thinking about what is salvation. It's about helping people. And therefore, they say our job is to go there and just Help them in any way we can. Well, the helping becomes temporal needs. They don't want to talk about eternal needs. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 is, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? I talk about rearranging the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. I mean, I I want to help people. You want to help people. If I have it within my power to help someone, I want to do that. But really, I want to make sure that I'm not focusing the church's mission on temporal needs when the church's mission is not temporal needs, it's eternal needs. That's why I'm not even supposed to be, hey, any widow that has a need, come to church and we'll help you. That's social gospel thinking. But Paul says, no. As a matter of fact, that list needs to be as short as you can make it so that we can take our focus and our resources on eternally important things. If you really read 1 Timothy and you read it with any people in your mind that you know, that have had their husband die, and you think, wow, this is pretty harsh. Well, it's harsh not because he doesn't want to care for widows. It's because individuals can care for widows, but the mission of Christians and the church is eternal salvation. Spiritual needs versus temporal needs. Number two, the prosperity gospel. There is a salvation of prosperity gospel, and we're so familiar with that. You don't even need me to talk much about it, do you? (laughs) What are we saving people from here? it ain't poverty, not in the way that we talk about the social gospel. At least they're going for people that really have poverty. Now it's like your car is not big enough. And why do you want to fly, you know, coach and forget first class, you know, especially if you're a leader in this kind of church, you want to fly by your own jet. You've read all this. And he's not the only guy, but he is the face of it in our generation. Well, the Bible says, listen again, that's ridiculous. You guys loving the world and things in the world that has nothing to do with biblical salvation or eternal salvation or salvation to the uttermost. If you love the world, Love, the Father's not in you. If that's your goal, ridiculous. Verse 16, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of, in possession, all those things that the prosperity gospel is about. It's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, when you define the will of God as making everybody rich, having your best life now, you know, living every day like it's Friday, I think it was another one of his books. The idea of that, which is really what most of Christian television is about, you know why Christian television is about that? Because the only people that can afford Christian television, you understand that. You have to have millions of dollars to get on. The few guys that can get on it, like David Jeremiah and, and a few others, are the you know, rare exception of guys that are preaching a biblical gospel but have been so widely accepted that they can afford some of that. Most people that can afford it, afford it because the whole point of their ministry is to make money. Prosperity, gospel, salvation, and saving people from the middle class or whatever they say they want to do has nothing to do with what we're talking about this semester. Closer to home, let's end with this one. The weak evangelical gospel salvation. I talked about this throughout this presentation. Certainly what I grew up with is probably what many of you grew up with. And again, it's trying to beckon you across the chasm to be with God. And the only thing I can really emphasize, if I don't talk about the problem of sin and coming judgment and the justice of God that cannot be impugned by him winking at sinners, if I really understand what's at stake, Well, then I can't appeal to you to come to my side if I'm not going to deal with those things unless I just say, you'll be happier. It'll be better for you. It'll be more fun. You join our group, you'll be like, you know, you'll be like, great. Your teeth will get whiter. Your skin will clear up. Your kids will get better grades. It's all about improving my life. This happens all the time. Happens all the time in South Orange County. Happens throughout our country. Which the point of this is, come to Christ and your life will improve. It may have been well-intentioned. But one of the most popular tracks I you know, had in, when I went off to start doing ministry in college and everyone was passing around on the campus where I was doing ministry it was, it was Four Spiritual Laws. And I know some of you have the campus background and you want to defend that. It may have been well-intentioned, but what does someone hear when you say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? It certainly isn't a cloud and wrath coming and God reaching out righteousness to have a spot where there's forgiveness and you better cling to that forgiveness so that you will not incur the penalty of your sin has no appeal certainly not in the laws themselves and certainly not in the first one that's why these pictures that have juxtaposed that very common appeal to the gospel with the reality of persecution in church history have always been a comical juxtaposition god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life well the first century they would say what are you talking about We're getting fed to the lions. God has a wonderful plan. Well, if a wonderful plan for your life means whiter teeth, better relationships, everyone will be happier, your skin will clear up, your kids will get good grades. If it all means marriage enrichment or whatever, then it made no sense to them. But this was the context in which the gospel was given. Or this one I came across. God has a wonderful plan for your life, Peter, (laughs) in in John 21. You're going to stretch out your hands. You're going to die for me. Well, what about him? Well, don't worry about him. You've got a plan. You follow that plan, and and it's going to be a bad one. Crucified upside down. Our friend Ray Comfort, who I need to have back again sometime, wrote that book, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I love the the subtitle, which you probably can't read from that. the myth of the modern message. See, that's what I call under this category a weak evangelical salvation. And people are pitching it all the time because they are, as I said there in Mark 8, ashamed, unfortunately, of the Christ of the Bible who came very clearly not to give us a better life, not to make us rich, not to improve the world's living standards. I mean, that would be good. And along the way, if you can do something helpful, do it. But the point of the gospel and this army he's raising up with the gospel of eternal salvation is to save them from the penalty of their sin. And we're going to study that in great detail this semester. All right. Let me pray for you real quick. Are you clapping because I ended right on 815? <laughs> See, as I'm clapping inside my own mind right now because of that, let's pray. God, thanks for this team. Help us to really be able to discern the importance of what salvation is in your word, particularly the kind of salvation we're going to be studying, those passages that deal with our eternal salvation. Let that be something that just gets us excited to, to stand up for you in this world unashamed, clarifying without any problem, any confusion in our minds what real salvation is and what the gospel really is. Help us with that, God, as we proceed in our study, that we may be wiser about this and more accurate as we represent you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.